Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. You're listening to Right for Type. Hey, this is Brian Panowitz. I'm Lori Rader Day. This is Kelly Garrett. This is Ace Atkins. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That is such a great question. This is Jennifer Hillier, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Writer Types. Welcome, everyone, to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today as my special guest co-host is Allison Galen. Thanks for being here, Allison. Oh, it's great to be here, Eric. Now, you are no stranger to podcasting. Your book, Never Look Back, features a podcaster as one of the main characters, and you actually created a fictional podcast as part of the book promotion. Yes, I did. I wrote the script for a fictional podcast, which was so much fun. Um, it was suggested by um, my U.S. and my British editor, and they said, would you be interested in doing something like that? And I said, sure, I'd like to give it a shot. And it really was fun. I, I, uh, I included sound effects, and it was just like writing a great script. And I'm, I'm such a podcast fan, but uh, definitely I'm a true crime podcast fan. So writing a fictional one as promotion for the book was really a lot of fun. Uh, did you learn anything maybe from your past appearances on writer types? Like, well, I don't know what not to do. <laughs> I, <laughs> exactly. Um, I like to think that the podcaster in my book is sort of the bizarro world version of, of Eric Beatner because <laughs> he's really doesn't have that much of a sense of humor and you have such a great sense of humor and you have <laughs> such a good life and he's coping with so much. So. Yeah, he, he definitely has a lot, lot more to deal with than I do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I heard recently that in 2019, there were 11 million podcast episodes uploaded. And I, sometimes it feels like there were that many books out there too, right? Yes, it really does. I, I would say maybe even 12 million books. Uh, but yeah, there there's something about the podcast though. And I think um, it, it's it's sort of like sitting around a campfire listening to campfire stories or an old radio play or something where there's just something so intimate about it that it's kind of addictive, especially if you've got a long commute to deal with. Uh, it, a podcast is just great. Yeah. Well, now you are an Edgar Award winner. You've been on bestseller list. You've had books published in multiple foreign countries. How do you keep the fire burning for new achievements and new goals? I think the way to do it is to just try and kind of push the envelope and make your next project as different as you can from your previous project. So whereas I'm always going to try to write the kind of book that interests me and tell the type of story that I'm the best at telling, I try to just sort of do something a little different or push the envelope in different ways, like exploring the world of podcasts and never look back. And my current book, which uh, has a, a little bit of world building in it in a, in a strange way. And it also uh, is told from the first person present tense without multiple points of view. So that for me particularly is a huge challenge and something I've never done before. Well, that's cool. I, I, I like doing those little things where you switch it up. Like I, my book uh, all the way down, like when I was getting into that, I, I wanted to sort of just change up my style a little bit just so it had a different feel like you're talking about. Yes, exactly. I did that whole book. There's no speech tags in, in the whole book. There's no he said, she said, anything like that. And it just, it, it's a subtle thing and no one's ever even mentioned it. So I, I, I clearly it didn't like stand out and, and bump on anybody, but it was just a, a subtle way to sort of change up my own rhythm, I feel like. 
That's so interesting. Was that a real challenge for you to write when you were doing it? Did you find yourself inadvertently putting the speech tags in there? I did. Well, it was funny. It was something that I had to think about while I was doing it. And then, you know, about a third of the way through, it became kind of a no brainer. But then when I went back to do revisions, I was like, oh, I need to add this scene. And I added it. I think I maybe even had sent in the revisions and to my agent. And then I had to go back and be like, oh, wait a minute. I, I forgot. And I, I went back and I was like, oh, yeah, no, I put in a couple of he says. In there. <laughs> <laughs> that must have really made been a challenge for you in terms of writing really clear dialogue for each character. It was interesting. It it was one of those, it was, it was a good exercise. It was almost the kind of thing like I would recommend it to, uh, to writing teachers to give, (laughs) give your students that as a little exercise in discipline. Great exercise idea. In fact, you know, I've, I've taught a lot of workshops and things and I would definitely think about doing that. When, when you talk to new writers, are they mostly looking for, practical advice on how publishing works or are they more looking for like reassurance and inspiration? I think a little of both. Um, I think the one thing I say that isn't terribly reassuring is I know a lot of writers say just be persistent and just keep doing it and keep sending that book out there and keep trying to get it published. But I feel like if you're getting enough no's from enough people and some good constructive criticism from either agents or publishers, then it's a good idea to look at that constructive criticism and do some rewriting because that's the great power that we have as writers is we can rewrite. So I would say, yes, you know, I I tell them to be persistent, but I also tell them to do a lot of rewriting, which, you know, that's probably not necessarily what they want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Every writer needs to hear harsh truths. Exactly. I'm here to tell you that the real facts, not to to be inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Allison, our sponsor for this episode is Sisters in Crime. Are you a member? I am a member. I actually very recently joined uh, Sisters in Crime, and it was weird because I sort of thought I was a member of Sisters in Crime for, for years without being one. Now I officially am one, and it's a wonderful organization. It's such a good place for women to sort of connect and network, and also you're talking about learning and getting great advice. Uh, there's just, just like always wonderful seminars and events and just things to really help you learn about the craft of writing, but also the business. All right. Well, that was a perfect sales pitch. I, I can just skip the rest of my little sales pitch here. But but Sisters in Crime, it's it's a national organization of crime, mystery, thriller, cozy, anything else you want. They've got great writers of all flavors, as long as it has something to do with crime. And like I say, they offer resources, workshops, support, and just community and encouragement. It's not just for women. I, I happen to be one of the misters in crime, uh, and it's it's just been a great resource. That's what I was going to say. I have a lot of friends who are misters in crime, and they love it. Yeah, and and it's not not even just for published authors. I mean, any any level, if you're unpublished, if you're a bestseller, or if you're brand new, or even if you're just a reader and a fan, there's a little something for everyone. So if you go visit sistersincrime.org, you can find out more, and you can join up. So do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's time for our first guest. What do you say, Allison? I would love to meet our first guest. All right. So where do you fall on the idea of that there are big forces at work controlling everything behind the scenes? Oh, I definitely, I think the more I live in this world, the smaller I feel. So <laughs> yes. Well, reporter Jack Logan uncovers some nasty business in The Network, the debut novel by L.C. Shaw. But here's a twist. 
This is actually not her first novel at all because she is half the writing team of Liv Constantine. So we've got one woman, two pen names, and one very dark view of the forces out to control the world. So let's talk to Elsie Shaw. So, uh, and it's, is it okay to, to call you Lynn or should we stick with Elsie? Is it a mystery thing? Are we no. trying to preserve the illusion? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You, you can call me Lynn. That's totally fine. The secret is out. <laughs> the secret is out. <laughs> That's right. But we don't know what the C stands for, so. I can tell you if you'd like. You could you could sort of try to guess if I tell you that the C stands for something that uh, is used in my other name. It's a puzzle. Hmm. hmm. I got nothing. Constantine. Oh, right. Oh, you're the Constantine part. Yes, exactly. Uh, oh, I, okay. You see, this is why I don't write traditional mysteries, because I am not smart enough to puzzle out these kind of things. Yeah. How embarrassing that we didn't get Constantine. That's... Well, Lynn, I, I want to say the network, it, it's a little scary because of how plausible it kind of seems here in 2020. And I've, I'm not one to really go in for conspiracy theories, but it seems like there's some stuff in this one that's maybe based on some research you did about uh, some of the people that are sort of pulling the strings behind the scenes. I mean, are there really groups like this out there? Well, it's interesting because the idea for this book came to me probably over 20 years ago. Oh, wow. And it seems relevant. It seemed relevant then and actually seems relevant now. So I think it's really more, not necessarily, I mean, I'm not basing it on any real groups, but I think it's just showing what I think human nature is and the, and the tendency towards, as we all know, um, power and power corrupting and always more going on behind the scenes than any of us are aware of, which I think probably most people would agree with. So um, this is your first novel as a solo writer after writing in part as a partnership with your sister. Um, and was writing with a partner like kind of a security blanket? And if so, how did it feel to take that blanket off? It's not, I mean, in some ways, that's not the reason that we started writing together. I mean, we, we began writing together a long time ago. We wrote a, our first book, called Circle Dance. And then I moved to Connecticut and Valerie, you know, we both got involved in different things. And I actually started writing the network before Valerie and I began collaborating together again. I finished it and then I was pitching it. And that's when she approached me and said, you know, I think I'd like to collaborate again. So um, we did and, and ended up really loving working together again. So the, the difference is, you know, yes, writing with someone else say when you're, when the book comes out and all of those jitters and the reviews that you get, you have somebody to bounce all of that off with and, and make yourself feel better. So writing alone is definitely, um, I'm not going to say alone. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more scary because you only got yourself. And plus, like I could always blame if there was something that, you know, like a scene that was a little bit risque, I could always blame my sister, but I can't do anything like that. Now. She did it. So yeah, it, it is, it's more fun to do it together. And, and there's so much about the collaboration that I love. On the other side, doing something on your own too, it, then I have complete freedom, creative control. Not that, I mean, Val and I are very simpatico in the way that we do things, but this gives me the freedom in terms of scheduling, all of that. I don't have to check in with someone else. So, you know, there are some benefits to it, but I definitely missed her at points writing this. And when I would get stuck, I, you know, in fact, I would still call her sometimes and just run stuff by her because I'm so used to that process. No, oh, nice. You know, there's a probably a better chance of me writing a novel with your sister than with any of my own. So. <laughs> Everybody always says that. They're like, ah, I could never write with my sister. 
Yeah. We're, we're lucky. We, we've always been super close and um, we have a lot of fun together. We have similar senses of humor. So we, we have a lot of laughs and yeah, it, it's a good time. Well, you know, here on Writer Types, we love to talk about the non-book related things in writers' lives. And from what I read about you, it looks like you are really into scuba diving, right? Well, I used to be. I had, it's been a long time. You know, this was pre-kids and stuff. So um, I probably would have to get recertified at this point because it's been so long. But I did quite a bit of it um, in my, I guess, my 20s. And it was I, I enjoyed it a lot, I guess. Those darn kids, they ruin everything. <laughs> well, now, when, you, when you're down there and it's so peaceful and, and, and calm, do you ever get any great ideas when you're sort of alone where no one can bother you? I'm more concerned really with looking and seeing what's around me at that point. I mean, I think with the scuba diving, certain things, walking, driving, that helps me get ideas. I think that's more of a repetitive thing. But when I was diving, um, it's one of those experiences where where I really felt completely in the moment, not thinking about really anything in the past or the future, just being present. Well, that's good. It's, it's always, I always like when writers know when to turn off the writer brain. And like you say, just, just be in the moment. Cause yeah, it's sometimes well, it's, it's that, that writer voice can be nagging and, and come at you at the wrong time. Well, total all the time, no matter what I always, yeah. I mean, and of course for me, it's always taking a dark turn. So no matter what, you know, if I see, it's funny, my, my husband, we were, he was getting a new car and we were looking at different ones and one had this huge trunk and I'm like, wow, you know, you could fit a body in there. And he's like, okay, <laughs> I was thinking maybe golf clubs, but all right. You know I mean? It is just the way that the mind goes. Exactly. I'm a writer. I swear. It's just yeah, research. I know, I know people look at you like, okay, you're a little crazy. But. <laughs> So in the network, um, Jack Logan has to partner up with Taylor, who is a woman he loves, but who was married to someone else. So that's another twist of the knife you do to Jack. So I was wondering if below the thrills, is there maybe a romance novel working just underneath the surface? Yes. Yeah. I, there's definitely romance there. I mean, it's not, hopefully it is not corny romance, but I mean, it's it's more a sense of characters who've made choices in their lives that have caused them pain and then having to deal with that consequence. And I, so I liked the added complication of, you know, they, they were childhood first, they were best friends before they were anything that, you know, she was the girl next door and they were close and they knew everything about each other, but then he ended up breaking her heart and he's got to go back and now help her and go on the run. And she has to trust him when she really has never forgiven him for what he's done. So, you know, it just examines a lot of Redemption in very many different ways is a strong theme in the book. Yeah, the relationship in the past between the characters definitely uh, lends some depth and complexity, which in turn sort of drives the plot. So it's it's really, really interesting. Thank you. Now, Lynn, you've got two pen names that you're working under now. It's It seems like maybe you enjoy having a bit of a secret life. <laughs> yeah. Right. You have two pen names that we know of. Oh. <laughs> you know, it, it's so just funny. It, we, it never, I never intended it to be that way. But with my sister and I, when we wrote our first book as Liv, The Last Mrs. Parrish, we originally planned on using two names on there. And um, our publisher felt that sometimes that can be a bit confusing to readers or off-putting. So that's why we combined the Liv is for Lynn and Valerie. And then of course, Constantine is both of our maiden names. So then when I was going to go off and write the network, the concern was if I did that under Lynn Constantine, it's, it's so similar to Liv that 
again, re, you know, there, there would be brand confusion because what I write with, with Valerie are psychological thrillers and the L.C. Shaw books now, they're much more conspiracy thriller, more traditional thriller. We didn't want somebody picking that book up and thinking it was going to be like another domestic thriller. So I, I, I mean, really, I'm not writing anything under my complete full name. But now, it's, it's, since you're so adept at living these dual lives, do you ever get sort of a sideways glance from your husband? All when the he, time. He realizes like, how... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who am I sleeping tonight? I don't know. Who are you? So, Speaking of romantic... So yes. <laughs> I'm even thinking maybe I should get those mustache and glasses for if I go to some of these conferences because sometimes I'm on a panel as Liv and other times as Elsie Shaw. So, you know, maybe I'll think about a wig and a, a disguise. <laughs> so Jack and Taylor have more adventures to come and the book does end on a cliffhanger. Um, looking toward the next one. Now, are you working on book two or do you need a break in between or... Yeah, I, I've, I have completed book two. It is it is um, with HarperCollins now. And so, um, but yeah, so I, I did write that. And so now the question is, what am I going to write for books? Hopefully book three and four. So that's what I'm thinking about at this point. And I'm working on uh, book four, the book four under the live name with my sister right now. So hopefully we'll finish that one up by May. Look at this. You got you got two alternate lives. You have two book series going at once. You you need to get back under the water and just chill out. <laughs> I've got two dogs. I know it's like, it's like a theme right now, right? I have twins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Allison, I haven't asked you this yet. Have you read anything good lately? Oh, yes, I have, actually. Um, I recently read The Butcher's Daughter, which is not out yet. I believe it will be out later this year. But it is uh, the third book in Wendy Corsi Staub's Foundlings trilogy. Uh, it further explores uh, the story of Amelia, who is kind of is the main character, and a foundling herself. And she gets closer to finding her actual parentage. Uh, it's also just a great thriller tons of surprising twists and turns and i read the first two books in the series too uh which were a little girl lost and dead silence and they each have a mystery within the book that's contained but there is an overarching mystery throughout the three books and it's solved quite satisfactorily in this book uh, wendy's great she was a great guest and, sh and she made us all feel very small with how prolific she is oh god i know it's just, I can't believe I like her as much as I do. Because <laughs> that's a testimony to her personality, because otherwise we'd all want to kill her, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a chance to talk to our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, about some more new releases they recommend. And uh, I was going to fly out to Minnesota for the chat, but uh, you were too busy. So I had to handle this one on my own. Oh, too bad. <laughs> All right, from the snow-covered hills of central Minnesota, it's Dan and Kate Malman. How are you guys? Uh, we just took the uh, the sled dog in. Um, sorry. <laughs> Franklin can pull a sled? <laughs> exactly. It's a very small sled. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I'm excited to talk to you guys again. I know you always uh, have a great line on some hot new upcoming reads. And I actually want to start with you this time, Dan, because uh, you've read a book that I've also read, Line of Sight by James Queeley. What did you think? This was a really cool book. James Queeley, I know, uh, had done uh, some short story work. 
and Line of Sight is the debut novel from Polis. This is a very, very well put together debut novel. Does not feel like a standard debut. That's exactly what I felt. It almost made me a little angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oftentimes if you read a new book or a, a debut by a new author, there's sometimes the feeling of, uh, like, it, like Kate has said in the past, everything and the kitchen sink. Um, because mm. there's so much exuberance and joy and we're going to put a twist in here and a new character over here. And what if this happens? And that's part of that energy, that excitement that, that makes it, it fun to read. But sometimes a more sure hand at the wheel, um, there's some restraint and there's building and that confidence where you can let it breathe a little bit. And I think that was one of those main impressions that I pulled off of it. Yeah, well, and you can tell it's one of those things where James himself is a reporter for the LA Times, which is how I know him out here. He's been to out to read at Noir at the Bar, so I've I've known him for a number of years. And it is one of those things where it's like this is clearly someone who is used to just writing all the time. He's constantly on deadline. He's constantly just beating out the words, and he's constantly shaping things and keeping it efficient. And I think all of that really factored into this story that is also about. A reporter, although I guess in this case, an, an ex-reporter who's uh, maybe you know seen better days. And, and actually, I liked the hook. This is not uh, spoiler town or anything, but uh, when we first meet Russell, he's not working the wrong side of the street, but he's definitely taking some questionable cases uh, from uh, the establishment cops uh, because that's how he needs to make ends meet. So right off the bat, there's a little bit of that uh, that tarnishment. Absolutely. So throughout the course of the story. He realizes, is this what he wants to do? Is this how I want to turn a buck? And no, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but you could be a better person. Couldn't we all, Dan? Uh, this I've peaked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what you see is what you get. This, this is peak Malman that we're getting right now. <laughs> I'll downhill from here. Yeah. Well, I'm holding oh, oh, Kate, just hold his hand on the slide down. Yeah, I guess. yeah. <laughs> Um, but definitely very, very anxious to see uh, what happens next with uh, with Mr. Queeley, how, how this is followed up. Yeah, I, I can definitely see this, the start of a, of a long running series. Well, Kate, you have actually had the good fortune of reading a book that I'm excited to hear more about. Uh, why don't you tell us you've been reading a book by uh, someone that all three of us know and consider a good friend. And we're also thrilled that she's finally got a debut novel out. Yes. Yeah. I read uh, Murder at the Mina House by Erica Ruth Neubauer. And like you said, she's a dear friend of the community and uh, to us. Um, I think she visited us right before she went on her trip to Egypt to scout out the Mina house in Cairo, which is where the the book takes place. It's Erica's debut novel. And just like with James Queeley, she's really set the bar high for what comes next for what her writing is. She's got this very rich feel to, to her writing that it, it's set in 1926 Egypt, just put, uh, after World War One. So it's got a certain level of tone to it where you feel like you're transported back to to that era. Her protagonist, Jane Wonderly, is a, a independent young woman who's out traveling the world with her aunt. And they go to Cairo and they end up at the Mina house and a murder happens and everyone thinks that Jane did it. And Erica has done a fantastic job building in some red herrings into the story where you're like, you're reading and 
I'm always trying to figure out like, you know, I'm, I'm not along for the ride. I want to figure out the crime as I'm going. And <laughs> there were multiple times where she caught me and I was like, oh, I did not see that coming. Well, and now let me see if I got this straight. She goes to the Mina house mm-hmm. and there's a murder there. And the name of the book is what again? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, what, what happens is kind of in the title of the book. So if you didn't know there was going to be a murder at this place called the Mina house, well, that's on you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I wonder how long the meeting was to come up with that title. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled uh, for Erica. That's that's fantastic that, that she's got this coming out and uh, that she had the wherewithal to travel all that way. Did she, do you, Have you talked to her? Did she go just to research the book or was she like, yeah, I'm going to be in Egypt anyway? Nope. It was just to research the book. Wow. Yeah. She got to do all of this research and actually just be in the the location and i think that really comes through in her writing no oh, that's great yeah mark of a good writer there and i think erica is now writing the books to where she wants to travel uh-huh. so i think she's got a little bit of that <laughs> angle of well you know i'd really like to go here so i think i'm gonna send jane there yeah. <laughs> yes my my wife does not fall for this trap <laughs> I, I just be like oh I, I, sorry hon i can't go out tonight i gotta head down to skid row and hang out for a while soak up the atmosphere <laughs> see what the junkies are up to yeah that's not nearly as glamorous as no, no. that becomes more like stabbing on skid row than murder <laughs> at the mina house wait a minute i'm writing this down hold on stabbing <laughs> on the- Well, Allison, this book recommending thing is fun, don't you think? I love recommending books. Now, I'm going to assume you've been to Murder by the Book in Houston, Texas? Yes, I have. It's a great bookstore. Well, the staff there are always on top of the latest releases, and they have some recommendations for us in this week's Staff Picks segment. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'm a bookseller at Murder by the Book in Houston. Today, I'm recommending The Sundown Motel by Simone St. James. I love this book because it is the perfect ghost story. Deliciously creepy, but not overly scary, and the author's pacing is just perfect. As I read, I was frequently looking back over my shoulder and kept getting chills in the back of my neck. Sundown Motel is one of the best books I have read in a while. The characters are so developed, and the storyline drew me in from the very beginning. I'm John McDougall, the event coordinator at Murder by the Book in Houston, and the book I'm recommending is Rebecca James's upcoming release, The Woman in the Mirror. What I loved about The Woman in the Mirror is that Rebecca James isn't trying to put a modern spin on a gothic novel. She's just fully embracing the genre and running with it. It's got creepy twins, an overbearingly beautiful house, an old curse, and family secrets. Sign me up. The first time the main character, Alice, got lost in the fog outside of this big house, I knew I was going to absolutely love the book, and I hope you will too. My name is Rebecca. I'm recommending Hide Away by Jason Pinter. Starting off a new series, Pinter has introduced the character Rachel Marin, and she has a past that she really wants to keep hidden. The more I read, the more desperate I was to know more about her and her past. This book was heart-stopping, thrilling, and tense, and I loved it, and I really hope you do too. Hello, I'm Sally. I'm a bookseller at Murder by the Book. I'm recommending The Chill by Scott Carson, also known as Michael Carita. The Chill is an excellent thriller paranormal tale about ghosts and the power of revenge. If you like your ghost stories with a bit of a twist, this one is for you. Perfect for fans of John Connolly's Charlie Parker series and Michael Carita's earlier books, The Ridge and So Cold the River. The Chill gets my highest recommendation. Well, those are some great recommendations. And Allison, I have a book recommendation for you. Oh, good. 
Suzanne Redfern is the author of the new book, In an Instant. And I love this book, which kind of surprised me a little. It's not a traditional crime novel at all. And I know unreliable narrators are all the rage, but Allison, how do you feel about narrators who are currently deceased? Um, I love that because uh, Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies. So um, I do love a good uh, dead narrator. Well, 16-year-old Finn Miller dies in a car crash while traveling with her family and some family friends. And in, in an instant, she watches over them as they all recover from the crash and try to figure out what happened in the days before they were rescued. So I was eager to talk to Suzanne after I finished this book and uh, so eager that I talked to her without waiting for you, Allison. You'll, you'll just have to listen into this one. Okay, I will. And I'll probably buy the book. So Suzanne, I really loved In an Instant, uh, but I'm going to admit to something here that is a little embarrassing, if you don't mind. Not at all. When I read the back cover as I was getting into this, I thought you were being metaphorical because it's it starts in the back. I'll read it for people here. Life is over in an instant for 16-year-old Finn Miller when a devastating car accident tumbles her and 10 others over the side of a mountain. And when I read that, I thought, oh, meaning life will never be the same. But no, I don't think it's a spoiler to say she's actually dead in this book. <laughs> that is true. Yes, she dies early on within like the first 50 pages. Yeah, and I, I did not realize it from reading the back and I felt quite embarrassed when I got to that point in the book, but it made it so intriguing that it, I was just fascinated by the whole thing. But I, I want to know for you, how much freedom did it give you to narrate this book from beyond the grave? You know, I think that was kind of the only way to tell the story. From her omniscient view, she's able to see the true, I think, inner workings of the characters that survive. She's able to see them in their darkest moments when maybe they're not even so honest with themselves, but she's able to witness them in a very unique and, and unfiltered way. Now, as you explained in the afterward, this story is kind of inspired by some real events in your life. Uh, obviously, you're not dead, but <laughs> <laughs> although I don't know. <laughs> This would be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in the same room, so I, anything is possible, I guess. But um, but you did experience a rather harrowing uh, tale, so give people a, a, just a little flavor of uh, of what happened to you. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because I, I've gotten a lot of response from readers that were very affected by the note and they want to know if I'm okay and, you know, how much has traumatized me. And the truth is, you know, this memory, which was from when I was eight years old, it really wasn't something that was in my mind. It was triggered because I was, I happened to be on a chairlift with my kids on either side of me and it was an extremely cold day. And suddenly this very visceral memory of being it stuck in the cold came back to me and suddenly it triggered this remembrance of this event that happened when I was eight, which was basically um, in upper state New York, uh, the weather can change very quickly. So you can it was a beautiful spring day when we had set out just to go on a, like a, a day hike. We get to the top of the mountain and suddenly a blizzard blows in. So it was freezing cold and we weren't dressed for the weather. So I was with my uncle, his two boys, my dad and my brother. And my uncle didn't think we would be able to make it back in the, in the blizzard storm. So he decided to break into a small cabin. And um, my dad very heroically said, I'm going to run down for help, which left me and my brother 
my uncle and his two boys in the cabin. And I remember my uncle comforting his boys because they were very upset. Meanwhile, my brother, who's very, very stoic, he still is to this day, was just sitting there. And so I was taking his cue and I was just sitting next to him. My uncle had been by the way, massaging his boys. He had been taking their gloves off and massaging their hands and their feet. He was going hand, 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 foot, 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 foot. Meanwhile, my brother and I were just sitting there. Just freezing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were freezing. And I was eight, my brother was 10. Um, we, were, we were pretty little. And when we finally did get rescued by the Jeep and brought down, the paramedics were waiting. Um, I had what was called frost nip, which meant that the outer skin on my fingers had been frozen. But once they were warmed up, I was fine. I do remember how much it hurt. That was another memory that came back to me, just how much it hurt to have my hands warmed up again. Um, yeah. But the worst part of the entire thing was my brother sitting next to me and his gloves had frozen to his fingers. I'm getting a little bit emotional here every time. I do it every time. But um, wow. And they had to cl- cut his gloves off of his hands and he had first degree frostbite. And what's interesting is nobody ever asked us why my brother and I had been injured and the other boys had not, which was obviously a direct result of not having our fingers and our feet massaged or warmed when we were up there. And so that's where the story came from, is this idea of how much do you trust somebody else to look after your children? Well, and the book is not a a traditional mystery or or thriller by any stretch, uh, but, you know, there is death and lying and intrigue. So I, I definitely think mystery readers will, will really love this. I mean, how about you? Are you fairly wide in your, your reading and your influences? Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I write a little different than I think a lot of writers. Uh, I do write a little bit like what I would say, like Anita Shreve or um, like Jody Picoult in the sense that I write from an idea. So kind of a theme. So I don't necessarily go for whether I'm writing a thriller or a drama or you know, kind of think about the genre of it so much as an idea that I'm exploring. So in this case, like I said, I was exploring kind of our humanity and what we do when we're pressed for our survival versus our self-preservation versus our humanity, you know, and so that was kind of the big idea. And then I start writing from there. Well, you know, as long as you're tackling the the small, intimate ideas of life and (laughs) (laughs) little ideas. One thing that this book definitely taps into is a feeling that I think everyone probably has, which is sort of wondering what people might be saying about you when you're not around. I mean, when you were digging so deep into that and, and having Finn sort of eavesdrop on all these different conversations that a lot and a lot of stuff that had to do with her, I mean, did you start to wonder or even worry about your own life? Like, oh, what, what are people saying about you as you were living living through Finn's eyes, did it kind of make you paranoid? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think more, it just kind of made me look around and go, who, who is that flat tire friend? Who is that one who you really do believe would look after you the same way you would look after them or would come to your rescue or really, you know, who are those true, true blue um, people in your life? And, and it does give you kind of that pause of, Wow, you know, um, probably not. <laughs> you know, there were definitely. Some- <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know she'd loan me her her scarf. You know, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, I mean, you hope that you surround yourself with good people, but then you also do appreciate those people in your life that you do realize um, are rare and really are the ones that would protect you in a in a time that was very difficult. Yeah, and you hope you never have to put that to the test. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you would want to know what people are saying about us when, when we're not around? Or is it better not to know? 
Well, I think it's much better not to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was the other thing is, you know, I think that even for me, you know, there's this knee-jerk reaction sometimes of, of envy towards somebody that then you have to, as you get older, hopefully you check and you realize, okay, that's a silly reaction that I'm having and I should just be happy for this person because it doesn't really actually relate to me and, and their happiness should just be applauded. Um, but I think some of that comes with maturity um, and just growth and realizing how precious some things are in the world. But no, I definitely would not want to hear the initial reaction of a lot of people. No. <laughs> <laughs> After I was done, I, I gave this book to my 13-year-old daughter, uh, and she absolutely loved it. Uh, she was very excited to know that she'd read an advanced copy. That that was a, a thrill for her. But you know, it, when I popped over to Amazon to check w- what the actual release date was, just to confirm that she had read it before anybody else, which she was excited about, uh, I, I noticed that uh, on the day that I clicked on it, you had the number one book on the Amazon charts, which yeah. was pretty thrilling. Raise your hide. But then w- when I asked my daughter if she had any questions for you, uh, she immediately wanted to know, you know, how does it feel knowing that so many people are reading your story? It, it's, it's a little bit surreal at this point. I don't even know how these things like suddenly catch on and suddenly everyone's reading your book. Um, the most amazing thing is because so many people are reading the book, I'm getting emails and I'm getting texts and I'm getting messages on on social media every day from readers. And I did not expect um, the profound reaction that certain readers are having to Finn in particular and this idea of how you want to be remembered when you pass. It's extremely um, humbling and surprising and also makes me feel like I wrote something that um, is helping people in a way that I I did not expect. But it's, it's been a beautiful thing in that way. Well, part of the purpose of uh, this podcast is to take writers like you and maybe bring you down a peg. So we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> what happens when when a book has almost universal praise, but then, oh man, there's always that one guy or gal who has an issue. Yeah. When I looked the other day, of the 823 ratings on Amazon right now, 99% of which are five stars, you had a one star review and a guy said, it won't play on my Kindle Fire. So yeah, he gave you one star. To help him. I was like, can I write to him? Or is that like, I can send you a book. I'm like, I'll send you one. But I, I wonder, like when, when you were starting out writing, like, did, did anybody warn you about this side of the writing world? Oh, yeah. Definitely here's the negative. I mean, you can give me 3,000 nice things and then you see the one bad thing. I go, oh, oh, oh. You know, like somebody yeah. that's something about that I, I use the word anyways with an S and that that's not a real word. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I suddenly felt like a fraud. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to write. Oh my gosh. You know, so um no, I definitely hear the negative and I hope if you are readers out there and you're listening, you know, we are humans and it hurts when you say really mean things to us. But <laughs> for the most part it's been very nice. So I, I try and remember that it's 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 mostly people that are enjoying the book. <laughs> that's good. Well, that's, that's an important perspective uh, for us to have. But yeah, I think you tapped into it. As, as writers, I think it's it's been almost universal in the people that I know. And, and we all zero in on that 1% of the negative thing. And it, uh, it's so hard to let that go. Yeah, absolutely. Although sometimes, you know, I mean, truthfully, it does help you. I mean, I, I actually do read all my reviews um, or like you don't read all of them because there's a lot of them, but I read a lot of them and I do read the negative reviews and, and hopefully take something from them and grow if there's something that I think I can learn from. Wow. 
Well, you are more mature than I am. <laughs> Okay, Allison, we have one more author to talk to. We are chock full in this episode. I couldn't resist. There's too many great books coming out. But my friend and yours, Hilary Davidson, is back with her latest, Don't Look Down, the sequel to One Small Sacrifice. I'm extremely excited about that book. One Small Sacrifice was a terrific book, and Hillary is a great writer. So I'm really looking forward to this interview and the book. Yeah, she's someone I always look forward to talking to. So let's get to it. Okay. Hillary, congratulations on your fabulous new book. Thank you so much. You are so kind. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I'm so excited. It's a great series. Oh, blushing. You can't see me blush, but I am blushing. <laughs> okay, Hillary, you're writing about the NYPD in this series, which is quite a challenge and interesting. Um, I'm wondering, have you spoken to detectives, gone on ride-alongs? Like, what type of research have you done? And and was was there a side of the NYPD that you don't think had been represented yet? That's such a great question. So I have to preface this by saying that I did not set out to write a police procedural series. Honestly, that was never my goal. When I wrote One Small Sacrifice, the first book in the series, I actually wrote that as a standalone. And it was my editor who basically said, like, this would be such a great series, you know, would you consider doing that? And um, I, to be honest, I hadn't, I hadn't at all, because it is a huge amount of work to sort of go into police procedure and the forensics and all of that stuff. I have been given access sort of behind the scenes stuff, visiting like the medical examiner's office. And I don't mean the nice part above ground. I mean the morgue um, on the lower level where they oh, wow. actually dissect the bodies. Um, and the thing is like when you do stuff like that, you learn all kinds of things you wouldn't see otherwise. For example, when I went to the medical examiner's office, I noticed this strange chart up on the wall and it had things on it like liver and a number you know next to it and brain and a number next to it and I didn't understand what it was and so I asked and the answer was it was a competition basically whoever <laughs> found the biggest organs recorded it on this chart it was an ongoing competition between the medical examiners working in the office so it is details like that there is no book that's going to educate you on stuff like that it's great gives you real like depth and sense of uh, atmosphere on top of like making the story more believable so well, now you mentioned that one small sacrifice was supposed to be a standalone, but then for that book, you got a, a blurb from Sarah Paresky where where she said, "I hope we'll see more of Detective Sharon Starling." And so, I can only assume that you sort of felt the sense of obligation, like, "Oh no, I can't let down Sarah. I have to write more of these." Right? <laughs> for, yeah, that's one of my writing heroes. You know, it's funny because when her um, blurb came in, I'd already had the conversation with my editor about making it a series. And one of the alluring things was that it didn't require changing one small sacrifice at all. So there was nothing plot wise, character wise, not a word had to be changed. But for me, sort of conceptually, I was saying, well, that book is told from four points of view. 
you know, in terms of like how I structured it, you know, I have this idea for my next book, but this is a story that would be told from one point of view. And, you know, I think when I consider the word series, I think of series like Sarah Paresky's Amazing B.I. Warshawski series, or I think of um, like Walter Mosley and Easy Rollins, or, you know, these books where it's the same um, amazing narrator, you know, character telling you the story. Right. But I realized, too, there are other great examples out there, like Tana French's series, which is really loosely based around um, a police precinct. And so you don't necessarily have to have just one character that you're following. Yeah. Well, Ed McBain certainly got mileage out of the 87th precinct. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm so embarrassed to admit I have never read that series. And I really feel like I should because that's something that I've heard referred to as like, that's such a great... Uh, template for a series where you're following different characters out of the same precinct. Man, it's so daunting. There's like 80 books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to know where to jump into that. Um, the character of Joe is being blackmailed at the start of the book, and some photos are found that would embarrass her. So, my question for you, Hillary, is if someone sent you a note saying something vague like, I know what you did, pay me to keep it from getting out, A, how long is the list of potential? <laughs> how much would you pay to keep your secrets safe? Oh man, that you know that's such a great question because you know, the idea of someone saying, "You know, I know what you did." It's like, oh my goodness, oh no, which body have they found? Exactly. <laughs> In this social media age, you see over and over again, um, people whose lives are basically destroyed because of something they did in the past. And, you know, I'm always saying, I am so grateful that social media did not exist when I was a teenager, because, (laughs) you know, nobody needs that. Nobody needs that in their life. And nobody needs to be judged, you know, by something that they did in the past when they were underage and, you know, basically a kid. And in Joe's circumstance, it was a lot more serious than that because she actually was trafficked and she's built this life for herself where she's this beauty mogul and you know she does not want anything about her past basically getting out even though in a lot of ways she was the victim but I think what interested me most was that um I remember reading uh it was like Thomas Hardy's The Mayor of Casterbridge and you have this character who in his life now, he's doing so much good. And, you know, I think you could say he's a really good person, but he has this horrific past where he did some really awful things. And I'm kind of interested in that question of, can you ever be redeemed for what you've done? And for Joe, it's an interesting question because even though she's, I mean, her business donates to charity and she's really active in different causes, she still brings a gun to her meeting with her blackmailer. And, you know, that's at the very beginning of the book. So that's not spoilery. That's chapter one. And she shoots him like in that chapter, like he shoots at her, she shoots at him. And so there's a question of, you know, you, you understand to some extent her motives and you understand why it's so wrong that she's being blackmailed for something she was a victim in, but she's also a really tough character and she's willing, she is willing to kill someone um, if it means saving herself. Here it is, February, the dead of winter in New York. Do you write better when it's cold and miserable or and you're forced to stay in? Or do you like the sunshine and nice weather to keep you in a better mood overall? Maybe get out and walk and solve all those plot problems. 
That is such a great question. Um, I would say, yeah, I do definitely manage to get a lot of writing done in the winter. And I'm sure part of it is um, a hibernation kind of phase where I don't really want to go outside and it's um, miserable and terrible. But at the same time, I'm really interested in putting real life settings into my books. And so I find that there's just a lot of looking for perfect locations for different things. and you know, Don't Look Down has different settings, everything from sort of a really derelict kind of tenement building to really um, extravagant, luxurious, you know, townhouses. So there's a whole scale there. And I love sort of wandering around and finding these little pockets. I find New York is, I mean, obviously it's so overrepresented in fiction and, <laughs> you know, movies, TV, so much is said in New York. But you see the same parts of New York over and over again. Well, now this series, it's been dubbed the Shadows of New York series. And, and like you say, I mean, Detective Sterling is uh, a, a through line between these two books, but it's not specifically about a character series, really. And I think maybe that's why a, a general name like Shadows of New York is, is a good coverall for this series. I mean, you've been literally all over the world, Hillary. Is New York the shadowiest city out there? <laughs> so I have, I've, because I was a travel writer in my former life, I have been very fortunate to uh, to go all over the place. And I will say that big cities are always, um, you know, tremendous magnets for people, right? People, you know, show up there because they want to follow their dreams and, you know, they have these ambitions to do things. I think New York, more of your history follows you. If someone from the north of England moves to London, their accent still outs them to whoever they meet. And mm. there's that kind of sense of people know where you're from and they know your background. Right. Yeah. But you don't really have that problem in New York. In New York, um, you can show up really from anywhere in the world. And especially if you have any money, uh, the city to some extent will open its doors for you. And we saw a couple of hilarious examples in the last couple of years with these scammers. There was one woman who was living, I want to say it was like in the Soho Grand Hotel and um, pretending to be, uh, I think, a Russian um, oligarch's daughter or something like that. And she managed to get insane amounts of money um, from people for some charitable venture that she was supposed to be building. But I will say New York is the city where these people with sort of shady past show up and often thrive. I feel like I'm so interested in people being tripped up by their pasts. I think, uh, you know, people come to big cities to escape their pasts. And New York makes that easier than some other places. But it doesn't mean the past can't catch up with you. Yeah, well, call the mayor. You got a new slogan yeah. there for the town. <laughs> Come to New York. Yeah, in New York. I mean, New York's such a great example too because we've, you know, we've had some really um, interesting characters at the helm of the city. And you know, I think right now anyone watching Rudy Giuliani is saying to New York, like, this guy was your mayor for two things. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I was living in Toronto in those times, so I'm in New York right after 9-11, but yeah. uh, which is the very end of his term. <laughs> Said the woman who just explained how your past will always catch up with you. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, you I'm can't sure get away that easy. Stuff from Toronto that will working to catch up. <laughs> Allison, that's it. You're done. Congratulations and thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eric. This has been lots of fun. 
Well, thanks also to our sponsor, Sisters in Crime. For more information, visit sistersincrime.org. Sign up and join the sisterhood, just like Allison and I. No traveling pants required. Uh, maybe they have traveling pants in in this sisterhood. I don't know. Pants would be a good like promo thing, like some merch. <laughs> well, Allison, we always look forward to your latest release. You can stay on top of all things at allisongalen.com. Uh, you know, I almost named my website that, but you had already taken it, so I had to go with ericbeatner.com. Well, people can always find Writer Types on Twitter, at Writer Types, and our fancy new website at writertypespodcast.com. We also do have a Patreon page that I should probably promote more, but, but I'll be back with another great co-host and more great authors next time. Allison, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening. Thank you, Eric. 